6, we're going to kind of straddle a couple of chapters, finish up 18, and begin 19. That's on page 905 of the ESVP Bibles, if you're looking and following along in those. John 18, starting at verse 38. I'd say we probably have about four, maybe five of the outside Sundays left in the Gospel of John. So let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, as we approach your word and, and really begin to wrap up this Gospel account written by the Apostle John, we want to make sure we see everything that you intend for us to see. So we ask for the illuminating power of your Holy Spirit. Enable us to, to hear these words, understand, and then also apply what you teach us to our life. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. There was a mother with two young children in a doctor's office waiting room. And this was one of those shared waiting rooms with, with a lot of physicians. So there were, there were other people in the room. There was a, an older couple talking to themselves in the corner. And there were several individual people looking down intently at their phones. And the, the toddler who was playing next to his mother got up and walked over to the table with the magazines and grabbed a hold of the cover and ripped it. And this caused the older couple to stop talking and, and kind of look over to see what was going on. A couple people kind of glanced up their, from their phones and then looked back down. And the mother said, Lucas, don't. Come back here right now. But Lucas didn't come back. In fact, he kind of liked the attention that he was getting from the other people in the waiting room. So he walked over to the next magazine and ripped it. Mom said a little louder, Lucas, don't. Come back right now. And at this time, all the people in the waiting room were watching to see how this was going to turn out. Well, Lucas could see that mom had the baby on one knee and an open bag with things settled around her. She was in no position to get up and come after him. So he just did a little dance and, and walked over a little bit and grabbed one more magazine. And as he was about to rip it, mom said, Lucas, don't. If you come back here right now, you can have a Cheerio, but if you don't, I'm going to take them away for the rest of the day and tomorrow. And Lucas froze, and you could see the wheels turning in his head for just about a second, and then he dropped the magazine and ran back to mom. And it was over, and everybody looked back down at their phones. That is called a power struggle. And in the end, Mom found something that was important to Lucas, and she used it. And the struggle was over. And that was a relatively small power struggle. John 19 is about a larger power struggle. John 19 is about a power struggle between Pilate and the Jewish leaders. Pilate wants to release Jesus. The Jewish leaders want to crucify Jesus. And in the end, the Jewish leaders found something that was important to Pilate, and they used it. And that ended the struggle. This passage this morning is about a power struggle that took place between the Jewish leaders and Pilate, and it ended with Jesus being delivered over to be crucified. 
That's what this passage is about. And we're going to walk through this like we normally do. We're going to go verse by verse. And we're going to see that there are different rounds of this power struggle between these two groups. And along the way, we're going to answer this question. Are all sins equal? Or are some sins worse than others? Because that comes up in our passage. We're also going to take about five minutes to go kind of off-road and deal with a couple of textual issues regarding the days and the order of Passover and how they reckoned time. So you're equipped, if anyone ever challenges you, to the harmony of the Gospels and the truthfulness of the Gospels. And then we're going to seek to apply the passage, and we're going to see Pilate as a negative example. We're going to look to Pilate as an example of what not to do. And then finally, we're going to talk about how to avoid the most dangerous and most unwinnable power struggle there is. Let's read our passage starting at verse 38 of chapter 18. After he had said this, he went back outside to the Jews and told them, I find no guilt in him, but you have a custom that I should release one man for you at the Passover. So do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? They cried out again, not this man, but Barabbas. Now Barabbas was a robber. Then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him. And the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. They came up to him saying, Hail, King of the Jews, and struck him with their hands. Pilate went out again and said to them, See, I am bringing him out to you that you may know that I find no guilt in him. So Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. Pilate said to them, Behold the man. When the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out, Crucify him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. The Jews answered him, We have a law, and according to that law he ought to die, because he has made himself the Son of God. When Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. He entered his headquarters again and said to Jesus, Where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate said to him, You will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? Jesus answered him, You would have no authority over me at all unless it has been given to you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. From then on, Pilate sought to release him, but the Jews cried out, If you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. So when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judgment seat at a place called the Stone Pavement and in Aramaic, Gabbatha. Now it was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. He said to the Jews, Behold your king! They cried out, Away with him! Away with him! Crucify him! Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priest answered, We have no king! but Caesar. So he delivered him over to them to be crucified. Verse 38 begins with saying, after he had said this, he went back outside to the Jews and told them, I find no guilt in him. So let's, let's just connect this, first of all, with last week. Last week, Jesus sounded the horn of truth, and when Pilate heard that, that was the end of the conversation. Pilate, if you recall, wanted nothing to do with truth. 
He didn't believe in the truth. And so he ended the conversation. And he turned around and he went back outside to where the Jewish leaders were standing. And the first thing he said to them was this. He says, I find no guilt in him. He's not a political threat to, the Rome, to Rome. He's not a military threat to Rome. So Pilate says, I find this man innocent, which is probably one of the biggest understatements of the entire Bible. Jesus is the spotless lamb. He is the perfect sacrifice. Jesus is completely sinless. So yes, Pilate got it right, but there is no possible way he could have understood just how accurate and theologically correct his assessment of Jesus was. And with this declaration of innocence, we see the power struggle begin. Pilate knew what the Jews wanted. He knew they wanted him dead, but he wanted to release Jesus because he wasn't guilty and he wasn't a threat. So he brought up their custom and said, but you have a custom that I should release one man for you at Passover. So do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? And they cried out again, not this man, Barabbas. Now Barabbas was a robber. If you have a footnote uh, in your ESV, it also says insurrectionist. Mark tells us that he was a murderer. Mark 15, 7. And then the parallel accounts tell us at the same time, this is what Pilate was doing. Pilate was trying to release Jesus, but at the same time he was trying to release him the Jewish leaders were working behind the scenes to manipulate the crowds and to influence the crowds to, to side with them and have Barabbas released instead of Jesus. Matthew 27, 20 says, Now the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and destroy Jesus. So we can see this power struggle taking place right in front of our eyes. Pilate had the power of Rome. The Jewish leaders had the popular power of the people, and they're going back and forth. Well, neither side wins at this point, so we continue on to round two. Verse 1 of chapter 19, Then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him. Pilate doesn't want to kill Jesus, but he doesn't want this situation, situation to escalate into civil unrest as well. He's walking a fine line here, so he was looking for a way to, to appease the Jewish leaders, and he has Jesus flogged. This was accomplished by using rods or leather whips with fragments of bone or pottery or metal um, braided into the whip, which made it uh, inflict more damage. It was extremely painful. Sometimes, because this was the regular process for crucifying someone, they would first be flogged and then they would be crucified. Sometimes they didn't make it to the cross. Sometimes they didn't make it through the flogging. It was that painful, it was that um, bloody that they lost so much blood, they didn't make it to, to the cross. So Jesus was flogged in that manner. In addition, the soldiers were given permission to inflict as much pain as they wanted to on him. Nothing was off limits. And we can be sure that as experienced soldiers, they would have been very skilled at knowing how to torture someone. Verses 2 and 3 describe this uh, soldier beating, uh, placing the crown of thorns in the purple robe. Matthew gives us some additional insight to what happened. Matthew 27, 29 through 30 says, 
and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and put a reed in his right hand. And kneeling before him, they mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. And they spit on him and took the reed and struck him on the heads. Now, it's been well documented in extra-biblical literature that this was a thing. This was like a, a favorite thing for soldiers to do. They got bored, they were out in the barracks. So whenever they got a prisoner and they were told, you can do whatever you want with them, they would play games. And, and in this case, they would mock worshiping or mock honoring him and then turn around and take the scepter out of his hand and start beating him with it. And so they, they each took a turn playing king and subject. Now the power struggle isn't over. Uh, verse 4, once again, Pilate comes out, declares Jesus is innocent, but he's also bringing Jesus out to show him that he was flogged. So this is all part of this back and forth dance. He, he brings Jesus out thinking, okay, maybe they're going to be satisfied now. I, I think I can come away winning this struggle if I just show him that I did some damage to Jesus. In fact, Luke tells us this was the plan. Luke 23 15 and 16, he says, Look, nothing deserving death has been done by him. I will therefore punish him and release him. So Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns, the purple robe. Pilate says, Behold the man. This is, this is him saying, Okay, here he is. Take a look. As he stands there bloody and beaten, he says, Look, he's, he's harmless. Look at him now. Do you think he's going to cause any problems? He's not a king. He, he's, he's been subdued. Look, I have examined him thoroughly, and I'm telling you, he's not going to be a threat. Let's just call it a day, okay? He's been beaten, you, you kind of got what you want, and now let's, let's get what I want. Let's just release him. So Pilate's pushing for his release, but they push right back. It says, when the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out, crucify him, crucify him. They don't want blood, they want death. They, they don't want a flogging, they want a crucifixion. Pilate resists, take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. Which is kind of like saying, do it yourself. And he's not serious. And they know he's not serious. He's frustrated. And at this point, the Jewish leaders realize they're really not getting any closer to their goal. This power struggle is going back and forth, but there is a very real possibility at this point that they may not win. That Pilate may win the power struggle. So since he refuses to condemn Jesus for breaking a Roman law, they think of a new angle, a new line of approach. Round three, verse seven, the Jews answered him, we have a law, and according to that law, he ought to die because he has made himself the son of God. So the crime is blasphemy. And they're telling Pilate, all right, I get it. He hasn't broken any one of your laws, but he's broken our law. And according to our law, he deserves death. And since you are the Roman governor, and one of your tasks is to uphold law and order, and, and to support us, and since you certainly don't want any civil unrest, do you? Then you need to crucify him. And verse 8 says, when Pilate heard this statement, he was even more Afraid. It says more afraid, which means he already was somewhat afraid. Why would he already be somewhat afraid? And, and at this point, we're, we're fairly confident. It's, it's not that, that kind of subtle threat. It's what, that he said that Jesus made himself the Son of God. That's 
what made him more afraid at this point. He was already somewhat afraid. Why would he already be somewhat afraid? Well, Mark, uh, excuse me, Matthew tells us uh, in 27.19, it says this, Besides, while he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent word to him, saying, uh, Have nothing to do with that righteous man, for I had suffered much because of him today in a dream. So Pilate was already on edge because of this dream that his wife had. There was some supernatural... Um, suspicion or at least some kind of uh, caution planted in his mind from, from his wife's dream. So there was that. Uh, he was also somewhat already afraid because Jesus obviously did not act like any other prisoner that had ever come before him. Jesus did not cower. Jesus did not beg for his life. Something was off. Something about Jesus made Pilate uneasy. And then, of course, Pilate was aware of the Greek and Roman teaching about gods coming down from heaven and assuming the form of a man. I mean, they, they believed in these things. These were valid beliefs. And he must have heard about some of Jesus' miracles, surely about the raising of Lazarus. Lazarus. It was so recent, it had just happened, and it was so close. It was right outside Jerusalem. So all this was swirling around in his head, and now he hears that Jesus claims to be the Son of God? If he was afraid before, he's more afraid now. And, and, and his reaction tells us everything. He turns around, he goes back to Jesus. Where are you from? He wants to know. Okay, who are you, really? Out with it. Tell, tell me something I don't know. Tell me something that I, that I can use to go back and answer their, this new line of questioning. You've got to be straight with me. Who are you, really? But Jesus gave him no answer. Silence from Jesus. Romans 13, 7 says, Pay to all what is owed to them taxes, to whom taxes are owed revenue, to whom revenue is owed. Respect to whom respect is owed, and honor to whom honor is owed. Now Jesus was sinless, which means that at this point, Pilate was not owed respect and honor of an answer. Otherwise, he would have answered him. Despite being an earthly ruler, despite having civil authority, Jesus did not owe him the respect and honor of an answer. Pilate did not like being ignored. Now remember, um, whatever we think about earthly rulers today, multiply that by a thousand. These guys had an imperium, which meant absolute supreme authority. They wanted somebody dead, they just said execute him, and they would. Just, you name it, it was the king ruled. This guy was governor. Anything he said went. He was not used to people ignoring him. He was not used to people uh, lacking, uh, failing to show him respect. He wasn't used to people um, disagreeing with him. And so when Jesus doesn't answer him, when he asks him a question, he doesn't like that. So he says, um, you will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? This is his best, um, do you know who I am speech? Do, do you realize who you're talking to? He's telling Jesus, look, I can crucify you or I can let you walk. You better start showing me some respect. 
Jesus answered him, You would have no authority over me at all unless it has been given to you from above. So Jesus corrects Pilate. He says, No, you don't have any authority. Any authority you have is delegated. It has been granted to you by God. So let's get that straight, first of all. And then he says, Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. So here it is. We've got to unpack this. There are two things here. One, who delivered Jesus over to Pilate? Who was it that was guilty of the greater sin? And two, what does Jesus mean when he says greater sin? Well, first of all, who was it? Most conclude that Jesus is referring to either Judas or Caiaphas, who was the acting high priest at the time. A fairly strong case can be made for either one, and so I am not comfortable coming down dogmatically and saying which one it was. Both received a lot of light. Both had been uh, either heard or seen Jesus' teaching and his miracles. Both were familiar with the scriptures. Judas having walked with Jesus for three years, Caiaphas having studied the scriptures his entire life. Uh, Both uh, were familiar with Messianic prophecies. Uh, both had, had this kind of culture that they were immersed in, that they were, they were around. Both played a part and worked together to conspire against Jesus. So in the end, either one, because they had been given more light and more knowledge from God about Jesus and yet still rejected him, they are guilty of the greater sin. They're guilty of committing a greater sin than Pilate. This teaches us that God holds each person accountable for the amount of light and the amount of knowledge that they've been given in this life. Luke 12, 47 through 48 says this, And that servant who knew his master's will but did not get ready or act according to his will will receive a severe beating, but the one who did not know and did what deserved a beating will receive a light beating. Everyone to whom much is given of much of him much will be requested or required, and from him to whom they entrusted much, they will demand the more. So, for example, uh, the man who simply grows up in America and never goes to church, but yet is aware that there is a God because of general revelation, everyone is without excuse, and he hears bits and pieces of Jesus, he knows, he's heard the, the, the Christian biblical Christmas story and Easter story, he's aware of that, but he doesn't go to church, he's not exposed to the teaching of God. And then we have man number two, he's the one that is pretty much identical to man number one, except this guy follows his wife to church once in a while and has sat in on a couple of services over his life, actually more than a couple, maybe let's say, you know, a few dozen over a lifetime, and he has heard the gospel, he's heard the the gospel proclaimed clearly, he's heard a general call from God, he is much more aware about the specifics, about what exactly he needs to do, he's been uh, convicted of his guilt and yet rejected Christ. What this is teaching is that man will receive greater judgment than man number one. They'll both be in hell because they didn't repent and believe in Jesus Christ. They'll both be punished for their sins, but the man number two will be punished more severely. We we need not get confused on this. The question 
are all sins equal or are some sins worse than the other? The answer is yes, some sins are worse than others. The answer to the question, are all sins equal? No, they're not all equal. That's not what the Bible teaches. When Jesus uses the phrase, the greater sin, he's saying not all sins are equal. Some are greater than others. And this also makes perfect sense of us, not only from a light and judgment point of view, but from a sheer evil standpoint. Uh, This makes perfect sense when we look at the nature and the character of God. God is perfect. God is flawless. God has perfect holiness. God, God is perfectly true. God has perfect judgment. It is exact and it is perfect. So if God treated all sins the same, if, if God said, well, you know what, this sin, this sin, ah, it doesn't matter. I'm just going to lump them all into one. I'm going to send everybody to the exact same punishment for eternity. It doesn't matter what sin they committed. That would not be perfect judgment. And God is perfect. For example, a young child steals a toothbrush, tucks it under his coat, and walks out of the drugstore. And another person, let's say a 33-year-old man, kills 10 people. I hope we're not prepared to say those sins are the same. I hope not, because they're not. Neither will, be, neither will they be judged and punished the same. Otherwise, uh, God, God tells us repeatedly in Scripture, judgment belongs to the Lord. We are not to exact judgment on people. And the reason, one of the primary reasons that we can be at peace with that is because we know God will execute perfect justice. God will bring judgment in due time on each person perfectly. We don't have to get even. We don't have to get revenge. God will take care of that. The good news for the gospel, of the gospel for us as believers, is we don't even have to worry about judgment or being punished for sin because the grace of God has been laid upon us. If you have repented and believed in Jesus Christ, you escape judgment. There is no punishment for your sin because Jesus took it for you. Praise God for his grace on our life. Well, let's get to round four, verse 12. From then on, Pilate sought to release him. Pilate wanted to release Jesus before. Now he really wanted to release Jesus with all this new information. But the Jewish leaders have found Pilate's weak spot. They found his Cheerios. The Jews cried out, If you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. Now this particular Caesar, Tiberius Caesar, was known. He had a reputation. They were all kind of big power guys, but this one was known for being particularly paranoid about those who were under his chain of command. He was suspicious of everybody that they were going to assassinate him and and make a coup and take over. And if the, the Caesar decided that you were treasonous, he had you killed. So the Jews are telling Pilate, You know, we might just have to write a letter to Caesar. And we might have to describe what's happening here. And we might have to tell him that you wanted to release a known conspirator. And that this man claimed to be king and wanted to set up his kingdom within Rome. But for some reason, you didn't want to punish him. We all wanted him 
dead. The highest court in the Jewish land agreed. We're all in agreement. He deserves death. But somehow you want to keep him alive. And kind of close to you. We all just saw you talking to him in your house. Maybe we should write a letter. Verse 13. So when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judgment seat at a place called the Stone Pavement in Aramaic Gabbatha. Well, that was it. Yeah, they found where to press on Pilate. That's over. The power struggle's over. Jewish leaders won. I mean, Pilate wasn't going to risk his life over this man. It wasn't worth it. And because he didn't have any more cards to play, he folded and lost. The only thing he could do now was proceed to the official throne of judgment and hand down the decision they wanted to hear. They won. Verse 14 says, Now is the day of preparation of the Passover. Now here's, here's where we're going to have to go off-road for a minute. Let's, let's take a break from the narrative. We're going to put it in four low, go off into the dirt just for a minute because we have to deal with two issues. The days of the week during the Passover and the time stamps that the Gospel readers put on it. So first of all, it says, Now it was the day of preparation of the Passover. Some people read that and they think, okay, wait, so it was the day before the Passover? I thought we already had that. I thought Jesus already had the Passover with his disciples on Thursday, and this is supposed to be Friday, so I guess there's a problem with the Gospels. They're not true. No, that's not what he's saying. Day of preparation in Scripture always refers to the day before the Sabbath. Sabbath was on Saturday. The day of preparation was Friday. So this day of preparation was a Friday, but it says of the Passover. Not before Passover day, but of the Passover. So what John is describing is the day of preparation, Friday, of Passover. And remember we said Passover refers not just to the day of Passover, but to that whole week-long combination Passover Feast of Unleavened Bread celebration. So what he's saying here is, this isn't Wednesday before Passover day. He's saying this is Friday, the day before the, the Sabbath, of the Sabbath that occurs within Passover week. Okay, so we'll, that's what that means. We don't have, any, have to have any problem with that anymore. The other thing he says is it was about the sixth hour. The problem that some people point out is that Mark says in Mark 15, 25, and it was the third hour when they crucified him. And once again, you can imagine, anybody who wants to level their guns at the Bible points these two things out and says, there you go, it can't be both. Your gospel writers are contradicting one another. Well, hold on a second. The sixth hour is equivalent to our 12 noon. The third hour is equivalent to our 9 a.m. in the morning. And first of all, it doesn't say that it was the sixth hour. John says it was about the sixth hour. It was about noon, which means it could be a little bit before or it could be a little bit after. In this case, probably a little before. We're still kind of in the morning time. And from the rest of the Gospels, we can piece this together. So when he says it was about the sixth hour, we're, we're wondering if he doesn't mean probably around, you know, 11.45, 11.30, 11.15. It was getting close to the sixth hour. The other thing we need to remember is that Jewish writers have pointed out 
that they have reckoned time using this hour method, but they also reckon time by the, dividing both the day and the night into quarters. So you, you probably have heard somewhere in the Bible it was the first watch of the night or the second watch of the night. They did the same thing with the day. And whatever hour that occurred at the beginning of that quarter stood not only for that hour, but for all the hours in that block of time. So when someone says it was the third hour, they could re be referring to 9 a.m. or any time between 9 a.m. and noon. And when somebody says it was the sixth hour, they could mean it was noon or any time between noon and three. Now we put this all together. John says it was about the sixth hour or about noon, which means it could have easily been 11 something between nine and noon. And then when Mark says it was the third hour, he could mean nine or it could mean any time between nine and noon. And now all of a sudden we have overlap. Now all of a sudden they're talking about the same thing. So it's not a contradiction. We just need to understand how they reckon time in the first century. Okay, we're taking it off, off back onto the pavement. Let's get back into the, the narrative. Power struck over. Pilate said, he said to the Jews, behold your king. This seems to be a last ditch effort to release him. Just kind of one more, uh, are you sure? You, you sure you want to kill him? They cried out, away with him, away with him, crucify him. Yes, they're sure. Shall I crucify your king? He's on the judgment seat. He's telling them, last chance. This is it. The chief priest answered, we have no king but Caesar. And I think what John's doing here is he's showing the reader, for the record, this is where the Jewish leaders were. For the record, they completely sold out God. They, they have no loyalty to God whatsoever. They publicly declared their loyalty to King Caesar, an earthly ruler, and they did whatever it took to have the Son of God crucified. So he delivered him over to them to be crucified. This passage is about a power struggle between Pilate and Jewish leaders, and it ends with Jesus being delivered to be crucified. What do we think of Pilate in this passage? I mean, he's an unbeliever, we know that. But what about Pilate as a leader? I think we have to say complete fail as a leader. Pilate serves as a negative example for us. He serves as an example of what not to do. He knew Jesus was innocent. He knew the right thing was to release him. He had the power to do that. And yet he acted out of fear. He acted out of self-interest. He gave in to the pressure of the crowds. In contrast, followers of Christ are to do the right thing even when it's unpopular. Followers of Christ are to do the right thing even when it costs them something. Followers of Christ are to do the right thing even when it means they lose personally. And they're not to give in to fear, opinion, popular movement, anything like that. There was a businessman who worked in finance, he was an accountant, and he worked for a very large national company. If I said it, you would recognize it immediately. I'm not going to say it. And he was with this company, and they had, they had some kind of promotional contest 
that involved giving away prize money. It was a substantial amount of money. And he was in this conference room with the other executives. And when the, con when the contest was over, they just decided as executives that they weren't going to give the money out. They just decided as, as the promotion came to an end, they would just kind of quietly uh, not talk about it anymore. And of course, there were lots of businesses and people involved and they would just assume somebody else won the prize money and they were counting on nobody following up asking. Uh, so they just decided they were going to keep it. And this man, who was a Christian, called them out. He said, no, that's not right. We can't do that. We've got, we've got to, to give the money away. We said we would. Here are the terms of the, the promotion. We've got to honor that. The executives left the meeting with the matter undecided, and soon after that, the man lost his job. And he had a wife who stayed at home with their four kids. He was their only source of income. Now the world would say, you should have just kept your mouth shut and your head down. The world would say, you just stay in your lane and do your job. Don't worry about it. It's not worth it. But he did the right thing. For believers, we must have consistency between knowing the right thing and doing the right thing. It's not simply good enough to know the truth and not do it. Otherwise, what? We're no better than Pilate. We're an unbelieving Roman ruler. We're no better than that. Can you think of an area in your life where there is a disconnect between knowing the truth and acting on the truth? Is there any area in your life where there's a disconnect between right thinking and right, actioning, right actions? Is there an area in your life where the cable has been cut between knowing and doing? And if there is, pray to God, ask for the strength and the grace and the power to close that gap because as husbands and wives, as men and women, as mothers and fathers, as sons and daughters, we are called to consistency between knowing the scriptures and doing the scriptures. I want to close with talking about how to avoid the most dangerous and most unwinnable power struggle there is. I'm talking about a power struggle with God. A power struggle with God. It's extremely dangerous. It is unwinnable. When people get into a power struggle with God, people lose. It's just that simple. Acts 26, 14 says this, and when we had all fallen to the ground. I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. A goad was a sharp stick that a handler used to get cattle or oxen or some kind of livestock to, to move and to go where they wanted them to go. And if the animal resisted the, the stick, if they kicked against it, then the handler would push a little harder next time until the animal moved where he wanted him to go. So to kick against the goads is a proverb of the first century. And in this context, it means it is pointless to resist God. 
Or to put it another way, people can't win in a power struggle with God. It cannot be done. The Apostle Paul couldn't win in a power struggle against God. We can't win in a power struggle against God. No one can. Maybe you've heard the phrase, you win some, you lose some. You've heard that phrase? That doesn't apply. That doesn't work here. It's not 50-50, but some people don't sometimes come out on top. Uh, it's not even, uh, it's really difficult, but it can be done. It, it's, not a, it's not a long shot. It's not even a one in a million type. It's, it cannot be done. No one can win in a power struggle against God. Remaining in unbelief after hearing the good news of the gospel is like being in a power struggle with God. Remaining in unbelief, not repenting and believing when God has made it clear to you, you have sinned in your life, you have sinned against me, I am a holy God, I demand justice for that. And I have provided a Savior for you. And all you need to do is turn to Him, repent of your sin, trust in Him, and I will forgive your sin. I will not count them against you. I will lavish my covenantal love upon you. I will bring you into my kingdom. I will give you a new heart, a new mind. You will be with me forever. But you must come to Christ. Anyone who rejects that is in a power struggle with God. Today could be the day that someone stops struggling against God. Today could be the day that you stop this power struggle with God and turn to God in faith who is the one who is all-powerful. He has the power to forgive sin. He has the power to reconcile you with him. And he promises to do that. Jesus was delivered over. That's what this passage is about, this power struggle, but it ends with Jesus being delivered over for, to be crucified for us. Romans 4.25, who was delivered up for our transgressions. We all have sin, which means we all need a Savior. And until someone comes to terms with that and turns to Christ in faith, they are in a power struggle. They cannot win. Once you answer the call of God, the struggle is over. In a good way. Romans 5.1 Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Justified means declared righteous. Okay? This is that uh, judicial ruling where God brings the gavel down and says, I declare you to be righteous in my sight. Not because we are. Not because we've earned it. Not because we've been good enough in this life. But because Christ's righteousness, his perfect innocence, has been imputed or reckoned to us. It is on that basis that God brings the gavel down and declares us righteous. We are justified by faith. We can't claim this. We can't earn it. We, we don't merit it. It is simply by repenting and believing in the Lord Jesus Christ. And then it says we have peace with God. That's the opposite of a power struggle. Peace means reconciliation. There, there's no more back and forth dance. There, there's no more um, worrying and, and being fearful about judgment. There is simply peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Christ is the only way that anyone can be made right with God. If you have never put your faith and trust in Christ, today's the day. Don't wait. Don't continue a power struggle that you can't win. Turn to Jesus Christ and have peace with God. Amen.
Heavenly Father, we give you great thanks for this good news of a Savior that has been given to us. He is the provision for our sin. He is the answer for our unrighteousness. And your word tells us if we turn to him in faith, you promise to forgive us our sin. Father, thank you for Jesus. Father, thank you that we can walk forgiven and clean with you through faith in Christ. In Jesus' name, amen.